I'm Roma Agrawal. I'm a structural engineer, author, and host of this podcast, Building Stories, a brand new series that looks at the hidden stories behind our structures. In each episode, I'll be delving into the fascinating secrets behind some of the world's best-known buildings, bridges, and other structures, as well as some incredible feats of engineering that you may never have heard of. I'll also explore what's going on from different perspectives, looking closely at the materials, history and people that led to the existence of these structures with the help of some special guests. In this episode, I'm going to explore one of the most famous bridges in the world, the Brooklyn Bridge, which connects Brooklyn to the island of Manhattan across the East River. Now, this bridge holds a really special place for me because of the huge contribution that a woman made to getting this bridge built, which was practically unheard of in the 19th century. We're shortly going to go into the science of bridges, their various forms and how they stand up. But first, let's hear from Erica Wagner, author and critic, who has written a fantastic book called Chief Engineer. She's going to tell us a bit about the story of the Roebling family whose design and vision created the longest bridge of its time. I have been fascinated by Washington Roebling since I was a teenager, which is a little while ago now. And fun fact, I carry his picture in my wallet. Fun fact, I used to carry around a picture of Amir Khan, a Bollywood star in my pencil case, when I was a tween. But I have to say, this is the first time I've ever heard of an engineer being worshipped like a film star. He, to me, symbolises a kind of hard-working tenacity, not giving up on anything, no matter how hard it is. He's also quite cute, so there is that. As is Amir Khan. The Brooklyn Bridge was designed by a German-born engineer called John Roebling. John Roebling was born in a little town in Saxony called Mühlhausen in 1806, but he came to America to make a new life for himself in 1831. He built a town called Saxonburg. It still exists in western Pennsylvania. And the first thing he did was invent wire rope. If you think of the kind of cables that are in the Brooklyn Bridge and wire rope and cables that are everywhere in our lives in the 21st century, John Roebling is really behind this. It made his fortune, and he became a famous engineer, designing suspension bridges all over the country. In 1867, he was given the job of building a bridge over the East River in New York between Brooklyn and Manhattan. They were then two separate cities. We take the bridge for granted now, but this was a really awesome, unprecedented task. John Roebling was an extraordinary man. He was very famous in his day. He was known as the Lesser Leonardo. But John Roebling, by all accounts, wasn't a very nice man. In fact, Washington has written about his extreme violence towards his family and also how, in his will, he had carefully deducted from his children's inheritance every penny that he had spent on them during his lifetime. So Washington Roebling was the oldest of John Roebling's children. He was born in 1837. He was raised by his father to be an engineer. 
To ask whether he wanted to be an engineer is kind of a pointless question. He had no choice. Emily Warren Roebling was Washington Roebling's extraordinary wife. They met during his service in the American Civil War, which lasted from 1861 to 1865, and the two of them met at a ball in Washington. And he was completely struck by her, and he wrote to his younger sister, Elvira, It was the first time I ever saw her, and I am very much of the opinion that she has captured your brother Washi's heart at last. So what started out as a man and a woman playing typical roles in a love story led to a shaking up of traditional gender expectations later in their lives, which had its basis in Emily's early upbringing and education. She was the younger sister, the very much younger sister of his commanding officer, who was a man called General G.K. Warren. And G.K. Warren loved his younger sister very much, treated her more like a daughter, but crucially took great care for her education, which was not necessarily the case for young women of her class and type of that kind. She was very well educated, and G.K. Warren himself was a surveyor, so she had grown up hearing technical talk. Washington and Emily married in 1865. But then in 1867, during the first preparations for the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, she and Washington went on an extraordinary trip to Europe so that Washington could investigate the most sophisticated techniques for the building of suspension bridges because those sophisticated techniques were happening in Europe at the time. By the time they went to Europe, John Roebling was already going to be the chief engineer of this new bridge. It was pretty much agreed from the beginning that John Roebling was the only man who could build this bridge. It was a radical construction. No one had ever built anything like this before, and many people thought, many engineers thought, that it couldn't be built. But if anyone could build it, John Roebling could. And then, in the summer of 1869, John Roebling had what seemed like a small accident. Doesn't seem like a big deal. Ten days later, he was dead. And now there was no one in charge of the bridge. It was also then agreed that the only man to do this was his son, Washington. Little did they know at the time that quite soon it would actually be a woman doing this job. By the time... Washington took over the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge, the engineering of the Brooklyn Bridge. He was 32 years old. He had never had sole charge of a project of this size, but then, of course, no one had. Everything about this bridge was new. It was a constant process of experiment and discovery. So he was down at the worksite probably more than many of his men who would have been working in shifts, but he was pretty much always there and, crucially, he was going down into the caissons. We'll hear a bit more about what caissons are in a moment, but essentially they were the huge chambers sunk to the bottom of the river that men worked inside to dig out the foundations of the towers for the bridge. To keep water and soil out, they were filled with pressurised air. So the water is kept out of these chambers 
with compressed air. But working in compressed air is very dangerous, just like deep sea diving is dangerous. And now we know that when you go deep sea diving, you have to come up very slowly so you don't get nitrogen bubbles in your blood, blocking your bloodstream, causing you pain. If they get up into your brain, they'll kill you. This is now called decompression sickness. Also known as the bends. But it was then called caisson disease. And nobody understood what caused it or why it happened. And people thought erroneously, as we knew, know now, that the way to avoid it was to come up as fast as you could, right, to get out of this. They thought that it was the atmosphere itself causing this disease, not the rate at which you come up out of it. And many of the men working on the bridge were afflicted, but then he himself became very badly afflicted almost immediately. As soon as he could not go down to the bridge, life was very difficult for him, for all of the engineers. He could not bear to have anyone around him. Except for his wife, Emily. What he started to do was dictate to her. He was afraid that he would die. He was pretty sure that he would die. So he had to get out everything he knew about what was to happen. And she comes to know an enormous amount about the bridge. And she is able to, as far as we know, go down to the worksite, convey his instructions, but also speak, you know, kind of on the hoof. She's able to deal with the trustees. And I should say, and he really said, Washington said, probably better than he ever would. She was extremely tactful. She was extremely charming. And that, of course, is a hugely important job on an enormous construction project. So that's what she did. And she did that until the bridge was completed. I can tell you that for a project of this scale, in fact, any scale, being able to tactfully and clearly get your ideas and thoughts across to a range of different people is absolutely vital to the project's success and an often overlooked skill for an engineer. Any construction like this is a hugely political operation. So many moving parts, but also they have knock-on social effects. And when I think about the Brooklyn Bridge, I often think about the argument that goes on over Uber. Because... If there was one group of people in the 1860s who did not want this bridge to happen, it was the ferry companies. And the ferry companies were not in favor of this giant construction that would, as we see now, pretty much put them completely out of business. Of course, there are still ferries, but it's not a big deal. The bridge was opened on May the 24th, 1883. It was a public holiday in Brooklyn. And people who lived beyond that time said that there had never been a celebration in the city like it. And an interview was done many years later with a very elderly woman shortly after the moon landings. And there was a ticker tape parade for the astronauts, for Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins through the city of New York, this amazing celebration. But this old lady said but that was nothing compared to the day that they opened the Brooklyn Bridge. 
What an amazing family. One of the things I found really fascinating when I was researching Emily's story was how differently her contribution was described in different sources. Sometimes there was no acknowledgement of her work at all. But it is nice that today there is a bronze plaque on one of the towers that supports the bridge, which is dedicated to Emily, her husband and her father-in-law. It reads, The builders of the bridge, dedicated to the memory of Emily Warren Roebling, whose faith and courage helped her stricken husband, Colonel Washington A. Roebling, complete the construction of this bridge from the plans of his father, John A. Roebling, who gave his life to the bridge. Back of every great work, we can find the self-sacrificing devotion of a woman. Now, I don't really know how I feel about that last sentence there, but I think it's important to remember that the Brooklyn Bridge was a pioneering structure. The Roeblings used a new technology called pneumatic caissons to build the foundations. It was also the first bridge to use steel rather than iron cables. And as I mentioned, it was the longest bridge of its time. But the Brooklyn Bridge is only one type of bridge that we see in our landscapes, and there are loads of other forms. Engineer Oliver Broadbent tells us more. How many types of bridges are there? Well, I would have to do an inventory live rather than I don't have the answer off the top of my head. I think starting with the simplest, you've got the log that's fallen down across the stream, which is probably your most most primitive bridge. That is a beam bridge. Now imagine a person standing in the middle of the log. One half of their weight is transferred to one end of the log and the other half to the other. And finally, this force is then channeled through the log support into the ground. Gravity pulls the person downwards, causing the log to flex slightly so that it gets slightly squashed at the top of the log and slightly pulled at its underside. Getting a little bit more sophisticated would be your arch bridge. Um, And I forget exactly which ancient civilization did that first. It was the Romans, mate. To picture an arch bridge, start with a Toblerone chocolate bar. Break the bar into its individual wedge-shaped pieces, which are the components of your arch bridge. Let's make sure that the wider part of those wedges are at the top and the narrow bits point downwards and then stack them side by side and stick them on a table. You don't end up with a straight line like its original shape, but instead you've created an arch. If you then push down, um, quite gently I'd suggest, in the middle of the arch, imagine that the force from your finger is flowing down through the wedge-shaped pieces of chocolate. The clever thing about arches is that instead of channeling forces across its length in bending, like the log did, it instead does it in compression. So every piece of chocolate is being squashed. By using materials like stone and brick, which are really strong in compression, the Romans created their largest arched bridge structures. So these are two types of bridges, the beam bridge and the arch bridge. The next one Ollie tells us about is the cantilever bridge. 
the steel truss cantilever bridge. Again, has this balance principle. You have some sort of foundations in the river and then you reach out, reach out on either side and the deck on one side balances the deck on the other side. So you can imagine you're standing there and with your arms outstretched, you reach out and there might be somebody else standing a little bit further away and they reach out their arms and and you're sort of balancing the deck on either side of the either side of the person. They're like a set of seesaws that just just meet where the seats are, if you can imagine. And they're all linked together so that they don't all kind of go seesaw up and up and down. Those are your basic forms. I'd say the other big typology of bridges is your suspension bridge or bridges that use cables to hold up the deck. It's fine having a plank going across a ditch or something but the wider the ditch the sort of sooner or later that plank is going to sag too much and eventually snap. So the idea of some sort of cable bridge is to have a cable thrown to the middle and then from a high point on either side it's sort of hoisting up the middle. So we have two types of cable based bridge. One is a suspension bridge and one is a cable-stayed bridge. The suspension bridge is the older type. In France, there were companies that would just go around and try and sell these structures to villages that live next to large rivers. So, so you get a lot of these, these kind of relatively small suspension bridges in rural France. It's really, really charming. Uh, I'd love to be a suspension bridge salesperson. but uh, Come on, Ollie, let's get back on topic now. Anyway, really what you've got is a, a chain which is hung between the two towers, so a tower on either, basically on either side of the span, and the deck is then hung from that chain. So that is how the Brooklyn Bridge works. The other type of cable bridge is a cable-stayed bridge. And in this case, rather than having a big chain which goes up to a tower and then is transferred back to the sides, um, really it's a, a game of balancing. You could imagine that you have a bit of deck to one side of the tower and it's balanced by a bit of deck on the other side of the tower with a cable just going simply over the top of the tower and down to the other side. And we'll put pictures of all these types of bridges on our website if you want to have a look. www.buildingstoriespodcast.com So, all these different types of bridges. Why would you pick one of these over another one? In no particular order, I think one of the things you have to consider is the span. The minimum distance between two of the legs that are holding it up. So for the shortest bridges, we would use a beam bridge. A little longer, and then arches are a good choice. But at some point, the scale of length means you need cables to help. So then you move into cable-stayed and suspension territory. Another feature is... What does the clearance have to be? How high above the water level do you need to be? But height comes at a cost because you've got to get up there. You know, if you've got a if you've got a bridge that's a hundred meters high, you've got to have approach ramps which are two kilometers long. Materials is another thing. Uh, obviously, greater consideration a long time ago where things were only built with local materials. Uh, but uh, for quite a while now, we've been good at moving materials around the world. For example, the Sydney Harbour Bridge was built in the northeast of England, packed up into parts and shipped around to the other side of the world. So you don't have to use local materials, but you might use local materials for things like the foundations or those sorts of things. So materials obviously is a consideration. As I mentioned, the Romans are famous for their arch bridges, made possible because they had access to stone from their mines and manufactured bricks at volume across their lands. I'd say another consideration, of course, is what is the visual appearance and what do you want this to be a statement bridge or should it be understated? Or you might want to have something which doesn't get in the way so that it doesn't spoil the view. The foundations of any structure are, of course, very important to make sure it doesn't sink or tilt. And with bridges, they can be particularly challenging, especially when you're building above or near water. 
any structure which you put on the ground. We know from Newton that for any reaction there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so if you put a heavy thing on the ground, you need something to push back up on it. Now it's fine if you're sitting on rock, um, but when you get into sort of riverbeds where the ground is sort of silty and sandy and soft, if you put a great big structure on there, it is going to sink. Now it could be that you're going to dig down until you reach bedrock, or it could be that you're actually just going to sink very long foundations down into the soft material, but they're so long that the friction on them holds them in place. We know New York has very strong bedrock, that's why they were able to build all those skyscrapers there. But in the river, the bedrock was a long way down. So uh, one of the things that you have to work out is how to create a construction site in the middle of the river that allows you to get to that bedrock. One of the technologies that was invented around that time, which was a real game-changer, was uh, the idea of the, the caisson. It's one of my sort of favourite bits of engineering from that period of time. Let's imagine, for whatever reason you need, you need to sh sink a shaft into the ground. One way to do that is, this is very clever, you, you build a great big steel ring or iron ring on the ground, like a, like a cookie cutter. And then you pile up rings of concrete or stone on top of that cookie cutter, so like uh, donuts that, that basically follow the outline of the cookie cutter and, and pile up. Now, that adds extra pressure. It's a bit like when you push your hand down on a cookie cutter to cut the cookie dough that concrete or stone weight on top of, the, of that iron is going to push down and push it down into the ground. And then you have people working inside the cookie cutter excavating all that soil. And as they excavate round, it sinks down a bit more. And what they can do is add more rings. And those rings that they're adding on top then become the walls of that shaft. And you can go really deep that way. So There's one thing to do on land, but when you're doing it in a riverbed, one of the problems you've got is that that soil that you're digging in is completely saturated. So there's a risk that the, that the water is just going to burst in through the sides or is actually just going to just bubble up through the ground because you've actually got, we've got very wet ground and suddenly you just have, could have all this water so suddenly rush in from underneath. I think it's pretty terrifying, that, that idea. So one of the developments that the, the Roeblings came up with in the case of the Brooklyn Bridge was to build a caisson. A caisson is basically like an upside-down uh, jam jar which they're pushing down into the wet sand. And the upside-down jam jar on the sides keeps the water out. And then they can pile their heavy weights on top of the jam jar, and that is what pushes the jam jar down into the ground. And then to stop the ground itself underneath from just giving way and all the wet water just kind of basically coming around the sides and underneath, they fill that jam jar with compressed air. So basically, they're like pushing back down on the ground with, with, with compressed air. And the workers would work inside that jam jar. There'd be some sort of airlock, similar to what you'd get in a submarine. They would be able to get into the space, and they were working in, in compressed air. Now, they didn't know what they were doing there. The engineers that were proposing this, people got ill. Uh, they didn't know about the concept of the bends. Remember, because Washington Roebling himself was going up and down these caissons so often, he himself contracted the bends leading to Emily stepping in to help complete the project. The tragic thing was actually with the, with the Brooklyn Bridge is that uh, over in the, on the Mississippi and the Eads Bridge, they had worked out that they needed to be careful about the decompression of people, a bit like divers when they, when they come up from scuba diving, that, that change pressure environment. They'd figured it out, but there was no kind of communication of best practice then, so they'd figured it out in Mississippi but they weren't transmitting that information yet, so people died in, in, in the Brooklyn Bridge. 
I have to say, the idea of working in a caisson under pressure, underground, deep in muddy water, is not a career choice I would have chosen. I agree, Ollie. Suspension bridge salesperson definitely sounds like a better bet to me. Terrifyingly, in New York, I think they also used explosives inside these caissons to remove big boulders. So being underground in a chamber in the flickering candlelight under pressure, underwater, and then letting off explosives is what they would do. Because of the risks taken, the lives lost, and the sheer persistence of the Roebling family, particularly Emily, the Brooklyn Bridge lives on as a symbol of New York. It reminds me of the huge leaps forward we made in engineering during the Industrial Revolution, but that progress came at a cost. Us engineers today can only achieve what we can because of this progress made before us. It brings to my mind those famous words from Isaac Newton. If I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. Thank you to my guests, Erica Wagner, author of Chief Engineer, who is on Twitter at Erica WGNR, and Oliver Broadbent, who has a podcast called I Fell Overcast, and tweets at Eiffelover underscore. Eiffel, spelt like the tower in Paris, that is. This has been a Folded Wing production. Thank you to Dilesh Haria for my theme music. I've been your host, Roma Agrawal. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Roma the Engineer. And my website is romatheengineer.com. You can find more info, pictures and other exciting stuff from this podcast on our Instagram and Twitter pages. Just search at buildingstpod. Our website is www.buildingstoriespodcast.com. Join me next time to hear about the atmospheric Basilica Cistern, a hidden gem in Istanbul. This episode of Building Stories was made possible with help from the Institution of Structural Engineers, or iStructE, and Roma the Engineer Limited. The iStructE website features great resources, including unique learning tools like their technical guidance notes. You can also find out about the benefits of student membership, which is an invaluable first step towards a professional career as a structural engineer. If you're enjoying the Building Stories podcast, you'll hopefully like My Book Built. Learn more about the hidden stories behind our structures, now available in paperback, and available from all good bookstores.